0: Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: It was the final days of the Second World War in Europe, and as Allied troops swept across formerly Nazi-occupied territory, they found tens of thousands of concentration camp survivors in deplorable conditions. Malnutrition and disease were rampant, And on top of this, thousands more corpses lay unburied. One of the most well-documented examples of this is when the soldiers of the US 42nd Infantry Division rolled into the Bavarian town of Dachau. It was the final days of World War II, and they were expecting to find an abandoned training facility for elite, ruthless SS forces or maybe a prisoner of war camp. What they actually found has continued to shock, shape and define the depths to which humans can stoop in their hate filled acts. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and needless to say, this episode contains content that listeners may find upsetting, but it's an important history. One that Professor Dan Stone, the Director of the Holocaust Research Institute at Royal Holloway University in London, helps us to understand in greater detail than ever before. This April, Dan, marks 78 years since the liberation of Dachau by U.S. forces. But before we get into the details of this liberation, I want you to take us back a little bit in the history of concentration camps during the Second World War. What was their function and who came up with this heinously morbid idea to build such camps to facilitate the final solution?
2: That's a very big question. Encompasses a lot. A changing history, I think. It's very important that we don't read this history backwards from the final solution, because when the concentration camps were first established in 1933, the final solution of the Jewish question had not been devised yet, although the Nazis always, I think, had a fantasy of getting rid of the Jews one way or another. There was no plan as such to get rid of them. So concentration camps in their first incarnation from 1933 were... Primarily to do away with the political enemies of the Nazi regime, so the Social Democrats and Communists above all. There were Jews among them, amongst the first inmates, but they were incarcerated not as Jews but as political prisoners. The fact that they were Jews meant that they received rough treatment in the camps, rougher than the regular inmates, which was already bad enough. But the Jews as such were not targeted for incarceration in concentration camps in the first few years after The Nazis took power. So, Dachau in particular is extremely important in this history. It's the only camp that existed for the full 12 years of the Nazi regime. It was set up in the early months after the Nazis took power uh, under the orders of Heinrich Himmler, who at the time was police president in Munich, soon to take over as the head of the, the SS and build his huge SS empire across the Third Reich and beyond. But initially, This was to replace the so-called wild camps uh, that were established in Gestapo basements and so on, where victims were, were tortured. But Dachau was set up then as a place to remove, if you like, the political enemies of the Third Reich, but it also functioned, as did all of the concentration camps, as a kind of warning to the rest of the population. So it had a, had several functions at the same time. It, it both did away with uh, the supposed enemies of the Reich, and it was a warning to the rest of the population that this was their possible fate if they if they stepped out of line. And they knew about it because from the moment the camp was created, it was advertised by the Third Reich. So there was plenty of material about the camp in the Nazi party's own newspapers, the Fölkische Beobachter, for example, and in the SS's own in-house journal, Das Schwarze Korps, the Black Corps, which also ran articles about the inmates portraying them as degenerates and criminals, the sort of undesirable elements that needed to be swept away in order to create a pure Aryan society. It was featured in the international press. There was a great deal of information about the camp. So it was extremely well known. There was no embarrassment about it. The Nazis were quite keen to advertised the fact that they had not invented concentration camps. This was something that had been initiated in other regimes, the British in South Africa in the Boer War, most obviously, uh, and that they were simply uh, doing what any modern respectable state would do to create order. You
1: see, that's really fascinating because what you hear when you look at some of the history is that the local population didn't know anything about this. There's lots of denial. But what you're saying here is that actually it was incredibly heavily publicised because the Nazis were pretty proud of what they'd built.
2: It's totally implausible that the local population didn't know anything about it. There were there were signposts in the street advertising the directions to the camp. And in the first years of Dachau's existence, people would be released. I mean, these were not death camps. Well, that's what I was going to ask, Dan. Like, is that the key nuance here? Is that to start with, these were work camps? The inmates were often put to work and in the newspaper articles for example in Das Schwarze Korps you see photographs of the inmates performing labor but labor was not the point in the sense that until 1942 when the SS's main business administration office took over from the inspectorate of concentration camps when labor then became more important to support the war effort labor in the camps was more a form of punishment than than anything else It wasn't really contributing to anything particularly useful the inmates basically had to build their own barracks and the facilities in the camp but the labor they performed was more of the the kind of useless prison type you know moving bricks from one place to another and so on it wasn't really contributing to anything useful for the war effort but this was a punishment camp so prisoners did get released at this point in time during the 1930s at what point did it transition to be a death camp dachau was never a death camp dachau was always a concentration camp so the the pure death camps for the final solution that's to say uh, Chelmno in the Wartegau, and then the so called Operation Reinhard camps, named after Reinhard Heydrich, of uh, Belget, Sobibor, and Treblinka, they were all in the general government. So, the area of uh, occupied Poland that was not incorporated into the Reich, and they were pure killing facilities. I mean, they weren't really camps in any meaningful sense. There was a small unit of guards and non German auxiliary forces supporting them. And there was a small number of so-called work Jews who lived in the camp to maintain it, so carpenters and leather workers and so on. But for the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were taken there and immediately murdered. The exceptions in this history are Auschwitz and Majdanek, which combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labor, Auschwitz in particular, because it had three main camps, Auschwitz I, which was the original a concentration camp originally set up for Polish political prisoners, Auschwitz II, Birkenau, which was the the death camp, but also a labor camp, and Auschwitz III, or, or Monowitz, which was the, the slave labor camp where the SS were sometimes codenamed Buna Monowitz because Buna, or uh, the kind of ersatz rubber, was the goal that the SS were pursuing They're trying to create this artificial rubber. So the death camps were also outside of the purview of the regular SS's inspectorate of concentration camps. The camps like Dachau and those that followed after it, like uh, Sachsenhausen shortly afterwards, Buchenwald in 1937, and then camps like Flossenburg, Ravensbrück, Mauthausen, Gross Rosen, they were established as concentration camps, as you say, punishment camps, labour camps, camps to remove anyone considered to be a threat to purity of of the Third Reich. So in the first instance, political prisoners. And then from 1936, 37 onwards, there were campaigns against The so-called asocials, so people characterised as work-shy or beggars, vagrants, prostitutes, gypsies or Roma, were then rounded up in the mid-1930s. And the first time that Jews in large numbers appear in concentration camps is after the November Pogrom or Kristallnacht in November 1938. It's after that point that several tens of thousands of Jewish men are taken to Dachau and Buchenwald and Sachsenhausen. They're there for a short period of time, no more than a few months in most cases, and they're able to leave on the condition that they then leave Germany after being fleeced of their possession, which most do with the support of their families and once they can gain visas to countries that will accept them. So the regular concentration camp system doesn't really intersect with what we think of as the Holocaust until much later in the war. The crucial point about Dachau, however, is that It's often been referred to as a a school for violence. Former inmates referred to it that way. My colleague Christopher Dillon at King's in London refers to it as an academy of violence. That's because it's where the SS were trained as camp guards. And so people like Rudolf Hirst, who became the commandant of Auschwitz, also first signed up as a guard at Dachau in, I think, 1934. And this is where they were trained. That's one of the connections between the regular camp system and the, the Holocaust, is that the, the camps who were trained there then were spread out across the camp system more, more broadly.
1: You see, that's really interesting to learn because I've never thought so much about the geographical spread of the concentration camps and how that impacts what happens there. Because, of course, if Dachau is based in Bavaria and it's this training camp for the SS and it's not a million miles away from Munich, then I guess it, it can't be a death camp in combination like Auschwitz is or some of the other places that you've mentioned previously. So in terms of Dachau, its place in Holocaust history is incredibly important, like you say, because it is this test bed, this place where guards are trained. But it's also the oldest and the first concentration camp to be built, and the one that operates for the longest. So what is it that actually takes place within this camp? What is life like in there? What happens
2: when the prisoners arrive, Dan? It's extremely brutal. As the inmates arrive, they're subjected to a very rapid and violent shock tactics, I think, that removes them from their regular understanding of how the world works, and they're suddenly thrown into conditions where they're entirely at the mercy of the guards. There's, legally speaking, in the Third Reich, the regime uses this concept of Schutzhaft, or uh, protective custody. In other words, These are people that are not subjected to a regular legal procedure. I mean, that's one of the defining characteristics of a concentration camp, that people who are taken to one have not been prosecuted for any criminal behaviour. They've simply been removed in an extrajudicial sense from the ranks of regular society. They haven't been convicted of any crime. They have simply been extracted from society. And they're there basically as fair game. So the guards, not all of whom are sadists and psychopaths, of course, but the structure of the camp system and and the training system as it operates encourages a kind of violence. That's why this concept of a school for violence is so apposite, I think, because it instills in the guards a sense that they are the overlords of these subhumans and that they can do what they want to them, and they do. So the inmates are subjected to forced labour, to beatings, to a horrific regime of of undernourishment, of poor hygiene conditions, uh, of being forced to stand in roll call for hours on end, supposedly having access to goods in the stores but only if they have money to pay for them which they don't and so there's of course a kind of although there is some kind of collaboration and solidarity between different groups of inmates within the camp there's also a conflict between the groups and between inmates which is deliberately contrived by the guards this is the system that they set up so that the there's a divide and rule system at work so that the inmates can't focus enough on their own solidarity they're also kind of at war with one another so it's an extremely brutal environment people are as the SS would put it shot trying to escape that's to say they can be killed for all sorts of minor infractions the guards can beat the inmates on a whim and they do in the early years it's not quite the world turned upside down that the camps become at the end of the war but it's an extremely brutal and shocking contrast to the regular society that the inmates have come from. And of course, if they
1: turn the inmates upon each other, then they're not going to be fighting the guards or they're not going to be working together to plan an escape. This is very much a, a divide and rule kind of tactic. This is creating a civil war to ensure unrest and, and keep people busy. And I guess, hopefully, in time, they'll kill each other inside the camps. Is all of this part of this strategy, this doctrine of dehumanisation that we hear about? Something that was pioneered by SS officer Theodore
2: Eich, Yes. I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a civil war, but I think ICA is, is very important because he became the, first of all, one of the seven commandants of the camp, later became head of the IKR or the Inspectorate of Concentration Camp. So he was an extremely important figure. And exactly, he set up this system whereby the guards not just could, but should, Lord it over the inmates, so they should understand that they could be subjected to brutal punishment at any point in time. He introduces these various systems of torture, so famously the so-called post-torture, or being hanged from a tree uh, by one's limbs, which often caused lifelong disabilities and sometimes resulted in death. Absolutely, this is a way of enforcing a kind of dehumanised regime under which the inmates don't really have the strength anymore to to try and resist. And am I right in thinking, Dan, that the inmates at Dachau, one
1: of the first tasks they were given was a mindless, kind of numbing, endless task of ripping down a World War I-era munitions factory and then building some of the barracks for the officers?
2: Yes, exactly. The inmates had to essentially build their own facilities in the early years. And then again, in 1937-38, they constructed a kind of whole new camp complex as well, under supervision obviously, but the the whole camp was then restructured and, and the inmate labour was of course required f- for that purpose too.
1: And I'm sure on, on the backs of so many poor and, and innocent people as well. We've found out about what life and indeed death was like at Dachau, but when did the SS guards who patrolled the grounds, when did they realise that the jig was up? When did they start to leave?
2: Oh, not until the very last minute. Dachau as... We already said was the only camp that was in existence for the full 12 years of, of the Third Reich and it became an important site not just for the, the schooling of the guards but in terms of the SS's business enterprises after 1941-42 the so-called Deutsche Ausrüstungswerke one of the main businesses of the WVHA was established at Dachau it was also the center of over 100 subcamps, uh, slave labor subcamps that were established mostly uh, late on in the war, 1944, including very large uh, subcamps such as Allah and Muldorf. And so these continued to perform a function for the war effort right up until the very last minute. So the guards didn't start I mean, I think they realized that the game was up, but they were still there for the most part, when the American army arrived in April 1945.
1: You see, that's incredible. So they stay at this camp. I guess at this point they realise there's nowhere else to go. If you're in the heart of Bavaria, the homeland, the heart of the Third Reich, then I guess where else do you go? So when the 42nd Rainbow Division do turn up, what happens to these SS officers to start with? Are they uh, put into prison? Are they forced to you know, start to bury the bodies? What What is the first policies that are enacted by the Rainbow Division?
2: First of all, I mean, some of the SS do flee the camp in the very last days before the Americans turn up. Um, that I think we have to say that. There's a, a, a sort of a group of SS men who do a runner from, from the camp, but there are plenty of guards still left there. This is, I think, a subject now of considerable debate. It's perfectly clear, I think, that the, the liberators are shocked by what they see. There's lots of reports by members of the American military about how you know battle-hardened as they are they're not ready to face what they see when they arrive at Dachau and what do they see then well about 32,000 inmates mostly dazed and in very poor physical condition several thousand corpses lying around in the grounds of the camp they discover very famously this train that was had been abandoned in at the sidings of the camp full of corpses and what happens is that the inmates in the first instance turn on the guards that are there and start to tear them to pieces and there's also uh, summary executions by some of the American military of guards there there's a famous instance where 122 guards are shot summarily by Americans in what is quite clearly a war crime but I think if we can think in these terms it's perhaps the most excusable of war crimes that one can think of I mean the the soldiers who report on what they see there are quite clear about the fact that they totally astonished, they're furious, they turn their anger against the guards, German and non-German. And like you say, Dan, I wouldn't want to put us in that situation
1: and think about what we might do in terms of reprisals at the sites that are being seen before us. But one thing that puzzles me is that this wasn't the first concentration camp to be liberated. We go back months, we can see that Auschwitz has been liberated by the Soviet Union. So did the troops who were coming through to these concentration camps, did they know what they were about to see? Did they have any details, any kind of understanding of what was
2: happening at these places? I think in short, no. But that opens up all sorts of interesting questions. It's a very difficult question to answer well, I think, because it's certainly true that Auschwitz had been liberated in January of 1945. Maidanek had been liberated by the Soviets in the autumn of 1944. And shortly before that, Natzweiler in Alsace had been also liberated by the Americans. I think at that point, when Natzweiler was discovered, it wasn't really understood because it was the first of the concentration camps to be found. There was no sense in which this was just one of a number of camps that were going to be uncovered. So there was no real context for it. And when the Soviets reported on Majdanek and then Auschwitz, the problem from the Western Allies perspective was that they were suspicious of Soviet propaganda. And whilst they were, I think, ready to receive some of the information that was coming from those reports they remained suspicious about what the soviets were saying even though from our perspective today if you read konstantin simonov's report on maidanek which was published on the the red army's radio and then as a pamphlet it's an extraordinary searing account of what he found at maidanek and he says in that piece i don't really understand enough about what's happened here but i have to report on it now so that you can hear what i've seen with my own eyes And the same is true in in Auschwitz. Although the majority of the inmates from Auschwitz were evacuated on the death march just before the Red Army arrived there, they nevertheless found about 7,000 still-living inmates there who'd been left behind, primarily those who were too sick to be moved, and people, including Primo Levi, for example, uh, or Eddie de Vint, who was a Dutch inmate physician. And they were able to report on what had happened in the camp, and the Soviets were able to then provide their own detailed reports on it themselves. The problem here, I think is that you know we started off by talking about the way in which Dachau was advertised within the Third Reich and to the international press. and it's perfectly clear that there was a massive literature on the Nazi camps throughout the 1930s in the English language. So there was a huge literature on the camps by political scientists, historians, propagandists, survivors. There were lots of memoirs published by people who survived the camps in the early years. A, A book published in 1939, for example, with the title Dachau, the Nazi Hell, was quite successful in English. And so there seems to be this kind of gulf between the fact that there was a lot of knowledge about the camps in the 1930s and somehow this shock at the existence of the camps in 1945. And how do we explain that? I think the explanation has to rest in the concept of change over time. So the camps as the Allies discovered them in Germany in the spring of 1945 did not look like the camps as they'd existed in the 1930s. They had become what we now think of as Holocaust camps. So large numbers of Jews in Dachau, in Belsen, in Buchenwald, in Mauthausen, in Flossenburg, because they'd been evacuated there on the death marches from camps further east. These hadn't been camps for Jews. But lots of Jews and other victims of the camps to the east had been dumped there in those camps in Germany proper in the early months of 1945. So in Dachau, as in Belsen, the largest proportion of deaths recorded in the camp occur in the last three or four months of the camp's existence. There's an outbreak of typhus in Dachau in January 1945, which kills something like 15,000 prisoners in the few months before the liberation in the same way that huge numbers die in Belsen because of starvation and disease. So I think the liberating soldiers find in the spring of 1945 is a situation that is atypical in the history of the camps. It's a kind of aberration that the camps have been turned into Holocaust camps in a way that they had never been designed for.
1: We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records... To what the Royal Regalia used in the ceremony means... From the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service... To the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis.
0: And I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And on Gone Medieval in April... We'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry.
1: We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. In many ways, Dachau, towards the end of the war, is the final stop for so many of these death marches from smaller camps around the area or even further abroad, even, who have been brought in, I guess, to evade the advancing Allied forces on all sides.
2: But primarily from the east, okay. because the that's where the most of the camps are located. So Natzweiler in Alsace is discovered in July 1944 by the Americans and some of its sub-camps, Weyingen in Western Germany, discovered by the French army, for example. There aren't very many camps otherwise there in the west of Germany until you reach Dachau and, and Flossenburg and so on. And the inmates that have been marched to those camps in Germany, they're not necessarily from smaller camps. Some of them are. They're actually from the very large camps, so huge numbers of inmates from Auschwitz and from Gross Rosen in particular. Gross Rosen is a camp that I think is still... Not really very well known in the English speaking world, but by the end of the war, it held something like 11% of the total concentration camp population. So, with its subcamps, over 70,000 inmates. And many of them were transported either on foot or on trains or a combination of both two camps in the interior of Germany proper. The same with Auschwitz camps such as Stutthof near Danzig or Gdansk on the Baltic Sea were also evacuated by sea, to some extent, across the Baltic. There were very large camps that were evacuated and precisely, as you say, to prevent the inmates from falling alive into the hands of the Soviets. The irony is that the Death March is a phenomena that are very hard to explain because the order from Himmler appears to give the impression that the inmates should be kept alive and shouldn't fall alive into the hands of the Soviets. On the other hand, of the something like 714,000 registered concentration camp inmates in January 1945, fully a third of them are killed on the death marches. They're shot for failing to keep up or they're killed in massacres in various sites along the way most famously at Garder League and other sites where groups of sometimes a thousand or more are herded into barns and burnt alive. So it's very hard to understand what's what's going on here. It's not exactly A continuation of the Holocaust because if the Nazis had wanted to kill all these prisoners they had the means to do so. On the other hand I think there's a sense in which the SS guards are themselves confused in a situation in which the Third Reich is collapsing. They're full of bitterness, resentment, shame, humiliation, anger at the inmates. Uh, They also don't want to have to be walking across you know snowy fields in Central Europe but they also think this is a possible chance for some kind of negotiation that whilst they have these inmates alive with them, they can protect their own lives. And they can also say, if they're captured, well, we kept these people alive, we protected them. And so it's very difficult to know exactly how to interpret the death marches, but you can see that there are possible explanations from the point of view of the Nazis, whereby they might be looking to save their own skins. I think it's really important
1: to understand that part of the war and the death marches because, like you say, it reveals this morbid politics of bargaining towards the end of the conflict, but also it shows just these long logistical routes that people had to travel that tie all of these bigger and smaller camps all together to show the true scale of the Holocaust. Now, let's return back to. Dachau, if we can, Dan. Given the fact that the troops were so surprised at what they saw, and no one expected to see such such hardship and such really truly awful scenes, did this reduce the capacity for the Allies to provide medical support and to save lives? Or were the Allies prepared? Did they bring the right things with them?
2: They were not prepared, I think precisely because for the reasons we just discussed, that they hadn't understood at the end of the war that so many inmates from camps further east were dumped in Dachau or Belsen for example and so they were surprised by what they found there. It's also true to say that the liberating armies were not liberating concentration camps, that's not what they were there for in Europe. They were fighting the war and they were prosecuting the war and they encountered camps as the front line was moving eastwards, from the American or British perspective, in the same way that the Soviets encountered camps as they moved westwards. And so these were camps that were liberated in what had only just been combat zones. The armies, of course, had hospital equipment with them as part of the regular troop supplies. These were what they had to use to care for the inmates that they discovered. So no, they were not prepared. But I think... And this is in contrast to many reports over the decades that have tried to suggest that the liberating troops didn't care for the inmates. I actually think they worked incredibly hard to try and save the lives of the inmates that they came across. There are undoubtedly cases where soldiers gave survivors their rations in a way that didn't help them. And there were inmates who were too ill to understand that they shouldn't simply wolf down this food because it it was going to make them even more ill and possibly kill them. But it was not the policy of the Americans or British to give people the wrong food. Now, they very quickly understood that people who were dying of starvation needed to be brought back to life in a slow and controlled fashion. And there are many reports by survivors who say that they were cared for extremely well by the Americans and, in the case of Belson, by the British. The hospital that was set up at Belson, for example, the so-called Glyn Hughes Hospital, was the largest hospital in Europe and the largest hospital that's ever been created in Europe. I mean, you know, we think about the, the Nightingale hospitals that were erected overnight in COVID. They were much smaller than uh, the hospital that had to be set up in Belson, in the middle of a war zone with very few resources. Actually, what the Liberating Armies did was really quite remarkable, I think.
1: Oh, tell us more about this hospital. I, I, I know so
2: little about this. What scale are we talking about here? How long does it take to set up? When the British liberated Belsen, there was something like 60,000 living but dying inmates in the camp.
1: So this is immediate medical attention needed for these 60,000?
2: Yes. Obviously, a system of triage had to be implemented. And in the first weeks and even months after the liberation of the camp, there were people who died every day. So there were thousands of people who died after liberation. And I think not because they were not cared for by British Army, but because they couldn't be revived. During the Warsaw Ghetto, we have one of the first proper medical understandings or reports on what starvation is and how it functions as an illness. Uh, not just as as dying of hunger, but what actually what the physiology of starvation, what happens to the body, written by doctors in the Warsaw Ghetto who were themselves dying of starvation. It's an extraordinary report, and still important, I think, for medical training of doctors. And it shows that, of course, after a certain point, the body starts to eat itself and destroys itself. And I think there were many survivors who were simply too ill to be revived after the spring of 1945. And so this triage had to be put in place. But the main camp at Belson, which was full of the truly horrific, filthy barracks where the dead and the living were mingled together and covered in layers of faeces and and so on, unimaginable filth, the inmates in there had to be removed. The hospital that was set up was set up in, in one of the SS's buildings near the camp, and it was staffed initially with the field hospital that turned up with the British Army, Then they found local German nurses and doctors to staff it, much of course to the horror of the inmates who were terrified. And then there were, famously there was a case of 96 University of London medical students who were initially due to be sent to the Netherlands to help there. They were diverted to Belsen to go and work at the camp there. And after a few months the military allowed in charities as well to come and help so for example the jewish relief unit from london the american jewish joint distribution committee quakers and others all sent people to help so after a while this it became known as the human laundry this process whereby people were moved from the horror camp and then cleaned up and placed into this new facility that was rapidly built it's really a remarkable achievement and in dachau it was not as quite as massive a scale but nevertheless there were over 30,000 inmates in the camp when the Americans arrived and many of them needed medical care and the survivors speak very emotionally and powerfully about the support that they received there so sure there were mistakes made there were people who died from overeating but in general I think that the Americans and the British very quickly understood that the medical care that had to be implemented should be careful and controlled and particularly where refeeding was concerned.
1: And I can't imagine the, the life and death decisions that would have had to be made by those who are in charge of the triage, or like you say, these medical students that are coming in, but thousands of lives in the end were saved. And once a person had began to recover and they were no longer in immediate danger, what then happens to these thousands of innocent civilians who have been kept in the worst conditions known to humanity? What then happens to these people? Where are they moved on to?
2: That's also a very complicated question, and it very much depends on who they are. So, in the case of Dachau, for example, or Buchenwald, where there are quite large numbers of surviving German political prisoners, they're able to go home. So, back to their hometowns in Germany quite quickly. In the case of non German and non Jewish civilians, say Ukrainians, Poles, Hungarians, of whom there were many in the concentration camps, they were supposed, according to the agreements reached at Yalta, they were supposed to be repatriated to their home countries. For those that came from the Baltic states or from the part of eastern Poland, which was now Ukraine, what's today western Ukraine, they often did not want to go back because these were now regions that had been incorporated into the Soviet Union and they did not recognize themselves as Soviet citizens and refused to go back. And so one of the markers of the early cold war is this break where the allies after a certain point say actually we can't send these people back we're going to resettle them instead in a third country and the soviets of course object and say you're breaking the terms of the yalta agreement but there were cases of ukrainians who committed suicide rather than be transported to the ukraine so i think this helped to changed the allies minds only after there were something like seven million displaced persons in germany after the war including concentration camp survivors and about six million of them were returned home quite quickly in the summer of 1945 but there was about a million left behind who either would not or could not go back home and in the first instance jews were quite a small number they were a small proportion of that number and as a proportion they rose because over time people were resettled but the Jews were, the, in a sense, the hardest group to repatriate or resettle because Jews from Western European countries, from France, Belgium, the Netherlands, could return home slowly. It took a long time and a lot of effort, but they could eventually return home. But the Jews from Poland, Ukraine, Hungary discovered very quickly that if they tried to go back, for example, to look for relatives, that they were not welcome in their hometowns, that people had stolen their apartments, they were not expecting them to return. Jews in Poland were subjected to pogroms, most famously in Kielce in 1946. And the number of Jewish DPs also increased because there was a large number, about 250,000 Polish Jews, who had fled from Poland when the Nazis invaded and had spent the war as refugees in the Soviet Union. And at the end of the war, the Soviets allowed them to return. And they went back to Poland only to discover that there was no future for them there. For the most part, some stayed, but the vast majority then moved on and ended up as displaced persons in Germany and Austria. And although they were not concentration camp survivors, today we kind of think of them as Holocaust survivors because they had fled from the Nazis. They'd also had a pretty tough time of it in the Soviet Union and they ended up in DP camps. So because of the restrictive immigration policies of the Western allies, British would only allow 1,500 a month into Palestine. The British also, for example, had these work schemes, the Westward Ho Labour Scheme, for example, that explicitly talked about recruiting people of good racial stock. They wanted Latvians and strong Ukrainians and so on, and not Jews, in the same way that blacks were not welcome from the Caribbean. And sometimes in the same documents, they refer to the fact they don't want blacks or Jews, uh, they want people of good racial stock. This is in the 1940s, you know, after the war, and the same was true of America. The US only amended its DP Act... First of all, in 1948, after the State of Israel was created, and then again in 1950, by which point most of the Jewish DPs had gone to Israel. So although a large number of survivors eventually ended up in the US, it was a very long process of getting there. So in the first instance, many of the Eastern European Jewish survivors ended up in DP camps, and these camps, most of which were... The biggest of them all was at Belsen, but the majority of them was in the US zone of occupation. And the inmates in them basically ended up there for the long haul. So people were there for two, three, four, five years before they finally, and in some cases longer, before they managed to emigrate. And the the last of them at Föhrendals, also not far from Munich, didn't close until 1957.
1: So hang on. So the legacies of the Holocaust most directly, I mean, we're talking about geographically, you are based on a site for so many years, right next to a camp that has been responsible for thousands and thousands of deaths. And you have to live there for over a decade until you can be put back into society, to have any semblance of a a normal
2: life. Over a decade for a a small number of survivors. So when fohr finally closes, there's a few thousand mostly elderly and sick inmates in there. So people who have either been unable or unwilling to emigrate because they're too ill, can't be accepted by receiving countries, or because in some cases they've established themselves with German partners, started working, have connections with the German economy that make them think twice about whether they want to leave or not. But certainly in the first two, three, four years after the war, there are tens of thousands of Jews in DP camps who cannot leave, and the DP camps become basically functioning communities in their own right, with schools, religious institutions, newspapers, journals, sporting institutions, vocational training run by charities like the ORT and the Joint to prepare people for life in their new countries. But they often sit there for many years. I mean, the legacies of that from a historian's point of view are fascinating because there's a whole camp literature, camp you know, newspapers and journals, memorial books, all sorts of publications. That are produced in those camps. They set up exhibitions about what had happened to them at Belson, for example. And so, yes, for the most part, these are not sites that had been camps. The Belson DP camp, for example, is actually in Hona, which is just outside Belson. But the inmates of the DP camp deliberately kept the name Belson as a way of putting pressure on the British to say, look, we've just survived Belson, you've just liberated us, and now you're keeping us here, and we want to go to Palestine. It was a way of maintaining a kind of political pressure. But for the most part, there are some exceptions, like Landsberg, for example, which had been the prison where Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, which was also a DP camp after the war. But for the most part, they were not former concentration camps.
1: Dan, every time I speak with you or I touch on this topic, I'm reminded just how we can't cover it in one episode in any way, shape or form. We, we attempt to focus on Dachau and in order to understand Dachau and its legacy and its impact, you have to understand the broader consequences of what comes from that one site. And you've helped us do that so well. And, you know, you've helped us understand why you've dedicated your life to this topic. Dan, where can we learn more about this? Where can we find out more about your centre?
2: If you go to the Royal Holloway website or or type in Holocaust Research Institute, Royal Holloway, University of London, you'll find us easily enough. But there are many excellent resources devoted to understanding more about the Holocaust. So look, for example at the Wiener Holocaust Library and its resources. The Holocaust Explained is a wonderful website that's run by the library, the US Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, and many, many other projects that are ongoing around the world. I'd also like to mention what's today known as the Aralsen Archives, A-R-O-L-S-E-N, which was formerly known as the International Tracing Service, about which I've written a book that's coming out soon, and is the world's largest archive of material relating to the Nazi crimes so on Dachau for example huge runs of material saved from the camp by inmates at the end of the war who then set up what was called the International Information Office in Dachau to help people search for their loved ones they saved huge numbers of files relating to the inmates and these are now to be found in international tracing service and the the archives have put up several million of their documents online that's also very easy to find it's not easy to negotiate but it's an extraordinary resource and again another part of the history that we just haven't touched upon so dan we're
1: going to get you back on the warfare podcast soon thank you so much for your time thank you very much for having me Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at historyhitww2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.